Welcome to Enlightenment Rocks. We're your hosts, Kate Rudy and Stephanie O'Rourke. In this podcast, we explore the past, present, and future of Scotland's landscape, and especially the famous rock formations at Glen Tilt in central Scotland. Through interviews with artists, historians, and scientists, we chart a path through the unique topography of Scotland from the 18th century to the present day and into our climate's future. So I'm interested in your work how you explore relationships between emotion and memory through rock. Can yes. you talk about that? Yes. I think, I mean, different projects, I think it functions in slightly different ways. Um, and so I think I allow a certain flexibility of an encounter with a rock or with an object in a collection to facilitate an unplanned allowed response and wherever that response happens to be is okay. And so you're talking about serendipity, a serendipitous response. Yes. That you allow yourself or to we could say like a serendipitous encounter, which then um, can open up a deep place of memory and feeling that you don't plan for because you don't know it will come because you've never seen or encountered that object before. So if we take the project's Minerals of New York, um, I had an encounter in the collections of American Museum of Natural History with the Subway Garnet, which was a huge garnet the size of a large grapefruit. Wow. Was it, uh, it's, was it polished with multiple, multiple facets? Natural facets. Okay. The, I think it's the largest um, single garnet of that kind wow. on earth. And it was found on 35th Street between Broadway and 7th Avenue. They were doing excavations for the sewer system. Who knew that, that Manhattan would throw up garnets? Well, this is exactly your question because I didn't know that at all. I had never thought about it at all. And I'd never thought about my home place in that kind of context at all, or as, as a place that could produce a geological wonder or that was geologically productive. I just didn't understand New York City as that place. So when I was introduced to the subway garnet, which was named the subway garnet because they didn't want to call it the sewer garnet, <laughs> it was found during an excavation, recognized immediately as what is this thing. Mm-hmm. A woman named Jamie Newman, who's one of the primary curators within the mineralogy collection of AMNH, um, when I went to visit with her for the first time to get a behind the scenes um, tour of the collection, I said, what's your favorite object? And she introduced me to the subway garnet. And from that serendipitous encounter, I then said, do you have any other minerals from New York? Because I couldn't believe that this thing was from New York. Exactly. And it was from the neighborhood where my mother used to work in the garment district. So already there was this kind of shocking and felt connection to personal history and memory. And then this natural object that I... From garments to garnets. From garments to garnets. And she said, yes, we have this cabinet. And so you're free to look in the drawers. So I started looking through, and then I thought, this is an amazing collection. There were, there were minerals from all over the five boroughs. And I thought, and this is, I think, something that happens for me a lot. I have a, a, sl- a slow distillation process. When I'm starting to think about something new, I don't even know in a sense. I know, okay, maybe there's something here, but I have no idea what this will lead to. So I thought, these drawers in this collection are amazing. All these minerals are from New York. I want to make something about this. 
I have no idea what. I'll just keep coming back to the drawers until they make sense. And so every time I was back in the States, I would take a couple of days over a few years. This was during a period of time when my mother had dementia. So I was coming over, caring for her, helping her. I was working on a new commission with the Exploratorium in San Francisco. And then I just take two days and go through the drawers. So it was a very heightened time. And one of the trips, I was looking through the drawers and saw one that was from 87th Street in Amsterdam, which is, you know, around the corner from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. It's from my neighborhood. And then I kept looking. And then I came upon one, which was literally from my block, a piece of garnetiferous gneiss that was excavated from below the street where I grew up. It was like a deep anchoring navigational point. Again, connecting back to the idea of memory and geology and feeling, where I thought, oh my God, it's from where I'm from. We were born in the same place. (laughs) We grew up on the same block. Are there others that connect to places that I know from my own life? So I started looking through the drawers with a more specific memory-based focused process of, we could say, excavation. And I found a mineral from the place where I had my first studio. Another one. Was that? My first studio was on 14th Street and 7th Avenue. Oh, <laughs> I found another mineral that was from the place where I trained, you know, a block away from where I apprenticed as a stone carver. We'd say, oh, these are places, you know, connected to work. I'm in a research process. But actually, through the, that, that was totally embedded with a completely personal process of you know, dealing with loss, my, my father's loss, my, you know, yeah. Your mom's loss of memory. And your question makes me, you know, really in some ways think about the nature of the work that I'm trying to do, you know, which is how do we feel something about this, this um, place we're embedded in, that we're part of, this earth, this um, earth cycle, um, this universe, this, this um, the ether, all, you know, and, and for me, the only way that I understand how to try to articulate that is through feeling and through felt experience and lived experience. And for me, for you know, whatever reason that you know, is still mysterious to me, the language that I feel comfortable trying to articulate those thoughts or ideas through is geology, um, which is weird because I'm from New York. Um, <laughs> But I think, again, it's, it's from having had these very primary, um, very feeling-based encounters of rocks when I was little that just made sense. And, you know, I trained as a stone carver when I was a teenager at music and art high school. <laughs> and if I think even further back at camp, I, my really actual first experience of working with stone was with a piece of green soapstone carving a rabbit. And I loved it. <laughs> and I became obsessed with polishing the ears and the nose. And, <laughs> to get the texture. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. And still, when I even think about the rock cycle, the process of that polishing back, it's like, it's for many reasons. I like that you can reveal the growth rings and the cycles of the growth process of the limestone and that it makes the stone fleshy and um, by seeing the brick inside, which kind of looks like muscle or wound. Um, but also, it's this unadulterated love of that material and just the process of having contact 
with that material. And so moving forward to being, you know, a grown person now, um, I think the seed of that kind of feeling, like an unknowing feeling, but a feeling of contact or connection and a kind of joy in a material also still feeds then the serendipitous encounters that then lead to these very multi-layered ways of thinking about the world through encounters with rocks. It seems like some of your creative process comes from close observation of the material qualities that you're working with. And Morvan mentioned that you were so thrilled to see that upstairs, the yes. ceiling is made out of mica, which yeah. is really yeah. unexpected. It has this this shiny, almost mirror-like quality. Absolutely. That isn't. It's this natural substance. Yeah. And mica is this magical thing. I, I grew up partly in Massachusetts where, oh, yeah. where mica is. <laughs> Three of the micas are from Massachusetts. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, uh -huh. and the whole place is covered in mica. And you just oh, want to peel it off. And that's it's like it. fingernail material. It seems yeah. so biological. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's shiny and, and yeah. it has this wonderful texture and and, and the layers, of course, and, and yeah. where you've captured a lot of that. I mean, that's part of what you what must have excited you when you chose those objects yeah. and then worked with them further. So that yeah. seems to be also a theme that you're taking objects from nature and adding yeah. something to them. Yeah, it reminds me a little of I mean what was happening at the court of Rudolph II, and they would find slabs of marble that hmm. looked like clouds and mm. build that into a scene with. Um, hmm the gods and the clouds yeah. um, falling down from the heavens, for example. So yeah. they take what was there and then make it into its extreme or add to it. Yeah, something. yeah. Um, but anyway, I love the mica upstairs. And it's Thank great you. that they're from, um, from Massachusetts. Yeah, so there's three from Massachusetts, oh. and then um, the rest of them are split between being from Maine, mm -hmm. which is a place that I, again, spent a lot of time in my life. We went every summer, and it's where my mother lived for the last few years of her life as well. So the micas from Maine are from a place called Mount Mica, which was the first, um, again, I learned from Jamie at Natural History New York, the first place that tourmaline was discovered. So it's a really important tourmaline locality. And, and then some of the micas are from Scotland, from um, Inverness Shire near Strathbeffer, um, from a tiny disused mica mine that was opened during World War II. And a lot of the micas that are there are called Muscovite mica. And the Muscovite name is based on that kind of mica first being known and used in Russia in stained glass windows. The micas from Maine um, have tourmaline inclusions in them, which is like amazing um, because they're from the home of tourmaline. And, and, and um, the Scottish micas also have a mica that's called biotite, which is a black mica. So they're really diverse mineral families within what we would say in the, these books of mica. So the project is called the library. I love the books of mica because it's in pages. Yeah. yeah. And this is, again, um, there's a wonderful... Um, curator of mineralogy who I've worked with on and off for years, whose name is Peter Davidson at National Museums Scotland. And he is the person who first introduced me to the term, a book of mica. We are spending time in the mineralogy collections mm -hmm. and very casually, I was like, oh, you know, do you have mica? I love mica, I'm from New York. So I said, oh, I'd love to see some mica. And he said, oh yeah, I'll show you some mica. We have this book of mica is amazing. I said, wait, 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 book of mica. And um, he said, yes, you know, of course we, you know, because of the sheeting structure, mica and several other, you know, mineral types um, are referred to as books. And so this was again, like a kind of unbelievable um, 
moment of recognition saying, you know, this, this amazing material is a book. And I love thinking about geology as um, a geology of narrative. So often geologists on first field trips, et cetera, with their students will say like, you know, we're going to learn to read the rocks. And so it's inherently a narrative science or a science of, of stories. You know, you have to learn how to read the rock to then imagine what might have happened to make this occur, this thing happen. For me, it felt very much thinking about geology as a science of the imagination in a way that I could recognize from within my own life working as an artist. Of, you know, you, you take a leap of imagination to do things or to conjure things or to make your way through ideas very similarly in the way that you have to make various leaps. Um, like, I love the way of talking about the history of geology as a book where the, ta the pages have been torn apart and thrown into the air, traveled all over the world, and it's our job as geologists to reassemble the pages. So when Peter Davidson said to me, oh yes, this book of Micah, again, was a real spark point, where I thought, huh, it's very interesting, like, these are all these volumes, each volume has another story, and we're also, you know, part of that story. And so that fed into a lot of the ideas then for thinking, right, I'd like to make a library of Micah for the library here. So how did you engrave it? So the process of the micas, or you know, embedding the drawings into the micas, I, when I learned um, that mica doesn't conduct heat, um, it was around the same time that laser etchers were beginning to make their way into art production facilities. And so I wondered, and I've worked for a long time with the DCA print studio mm -hmm. in Dundee, um, and they had just gotten a laser etcher into the print studio when I was given a spare piece of mica because I asked John, do you have any mica? Because it doesn't conduct heat and I'm interested in seeing how it might work or respond to a laser. Um, so, you know, I hope it doesn't go on fire or explode. I don't think it will because it doesn't conduct heat, but I'd like to find out. And he gave me the, he said, I'll give you a piece of mica, but I'll also do better. I'll give you the ordnance survey coordinates for where you can find it yourself. And so I was able to go find um, mica. So basically all the Scottish mica that is in the library project is from the garbage dump of this tiny disused mica mine that was open during World War II. Then once I had some mica to experiment with, um, I approached the print studio in Dundee and I said, would you ever be interested in seeing what might happen if we try to laser etch mica? Mica is silicate, so it's like a glass. So what I hope will happen is that it will melt. I don't think it'll explode. I don't think it'll go on fire. You know, can we try? <laughs> and they said, yes. And so the laser etcher is like a big robotic machine. It's a big bed and it has a lid. So it's, you know, you're protected. And then there's a robotic arm that um, has the laser at the end. I um, made a series of digital drawings that we translated into files that the laser etcher could understand and work with. And then the process of laser etching was basically, you know, you put the mica in and then the robotic arm and laser draws or melts the drawing into each of the micas. So basically it, it was kind of like facilitating a process of microvolcanic eruptions yes, along the surface of the mica because it sparks mm -hmm. and it, it's, it doesn't scratch the micas, the drawings into the micas. It melts and recrystallizes them into the actual mineral itself. 
And so all of the, all of the volumes have been laser etched with um, drawings inspired by looking at trace fossils. Fantastic. So they're not depictions of trace fossils, but inspired by the um, concept of what trace fossils are in and of themselves. Fossils are fascinating. I, I, yeah. Um, so tell me about trace fossils versus um, actual um, fossil fossils. Fossil fossils. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, many things are on my mind from my very recent um, site visit to St. Andrews, uh -huh. meeting with your colleagues in Earth and Environmental Sciences, um, Art History and Museum Collections. But one of the things we did is we went on a walk on the coast where I was introduced to a very amazing trace fossil that lives along the coast on St. Andrews. A fossil is the presentation of the moment of death or of a death, whereas a trace fossil records the actions of life, breathing, moving, eating, like the, it, it records the activities of a life, which I loved the idea of. They, they remind me of the paths of snails and slugs. Yes. And, and sometimes the snail and slug patterns, they, they yeah. like they're jumping. Yes, <laughs> yes. But that's exactly, that is a, the that's a Scottish jumping slugs. <laughs> they're, they're very adept. Um, but that is exactly, that is a, a, that is a trace fossil without it becoming um, fossilized. fossilized. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's exactly that, like that pattern of movement or trail is exactly the thing that if a, a certain weather event or pattern might emerge, could preserve that moment of contact and movement and the life of what that slug was doing, not the slug itself. So you'd never see the, the organism, only the actions of that organism, which I thought is a very beautiful way to think about things. Also, if we think about our own lives, I've played around with the idea of thinking about our own lives as a series of autobiographical trace fossils. We each go about the movements of our own lives mm -hmm. and we have an accumulation of activities that altogether create a life and they're the traces of that life. I also liked thinking about it in the context of an artwork that maybe the artwork is also the, the trace fossil of an process. idea and process. This podcast was made possible by the Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund at the University of St. Andrews. The hosts are Kate Rudy and Stephanie O'Rourke. This series was mostly recorded online because of the pandemic, with some live recording by John Michael Kennedy. Sound production is by Eggbox Audio. The editor was Zoe Irvin and the assistant editor, Molly Fredrickson. Music composed, played, and recorded by Elizabeth Flett with thanks to Colin McAndrew, Barry Stewart, Al McGowan, and the Royal Society of Edinburgh.